Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Ellen Ellison, the Chief Investment Officer of the University of Illinois Foundation, which she joined in 2013 as its first leader of the now $1.7 billion pool of assets. Ellen restarted a program and a portfolio from scratch at a time when longer established university investment offices already had their chips carefully placed in the markets. Yet with a small team, she built a clever portfolio and is starting to reap its rewards. Prior to joining Illinois, Ellen was the Executive Director of Investments at the University of Miami for five years, the leader of a small family office for a year, and a 13-year veteran of fiduciary trust company. She's a graduate of Mount Holyoke University and Columbia University Business School and currently sits on the Investment Committee for Mount Holyoke. Our conversation starts with Ellen's career path and dives into the challenge of starting an endowment investment program from the ground up including establishing governance practices and figuring out when to put cash to work when markets feel pricey. Her favorite opportunities in the market, including a long discussion of agriculture investing, offers a very different take on the world today. Please enjoy my conversation with Ellen Ellison. Hi, Ellen. Ted, nice to see you. (laughs) It's good to see you. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with you. Let's talk about you and how you got here and what we're doing here today. Great. Well, on paper, it looks very rational and linear, but obviously living it, it it didn't quite seem that way. I grew up, I was born in Glen Cove. I moved a lot as a kid. My dad was a naval architect and marine engineer and worked for the American Bureau of Shipping. My brother was born in Japan and they moved back to Glen Cove before I was born, but I grew up surrounded by a lot of Japanese culture and art and have over the years developed a really strong interest in in Japan. But I've lived pretty much everywhere in this country and also in Europe, so nomadic and very adaptable by nature and by design. Let's see, I wanted to be an actress. I was a theater and French literature major at Mount Holyoke. I studied in Europe. I'm fluent in a bunch of languages, first French, then German, then Spanish. But I certainly saw myself in some kind of international career always. I figured out about about my junior year of college that my acting and directing skills, though decent, were not enough to make it professionally. And I really didn't want to starve. So I did the next most logical thing, which was to become an investment banker. <laughs> but <Ba-dum, boom. laughs> I must have been the world's worst investment banker. What, so what does it take to be the world's worst investment banker? Well, you're looking at her. So this was in the early 80s. I joined Smith Barney. They hired kids right out of undergraduate liberal arts institutions. And so no one had a particularly strong accounting or finance background. I really had maybe one statistics course, and it was a fairly fallow period in the market. 
And there was not that much to do, although they kept us there very late, not doing very much. I used to have to sneak out through the ladies' room on Friday afternoon to to catch the train to go visit my then boyfriend and since then husband, so that there's there's something with investment bankers and, and bathrooms. I figured out, I only lasted a year, I figured out that it would be much better to be on the asset management or the buy side. And so that's kind of been the rest of my career since my early Smith Barney days. I joined Merrill Lynch on the sell side. I, and then finally made my way back to graduate school at Columbia Business School. I really needed to round out my brain and get good at quantitative reasoning, uh, finance, and statistics. And I feel like that was a challenging program for me, but it was really good. I was blessed to be in Bruce Greenwald's first class. First class, wow. At Columbia after he came from Harvard. And Bruce Greenwald is one of the best people you could ever meet in academia or in the business profession. And he really just decided that I was good. He was very supportive. And this is now 20 years out. And he has been a a wonderful mentor to me and really uh, formed the basis of my eventually becoming a a strong value investor. And what did you do right out of business school? I worked for Fiduciary Trust International to build an investment team in Miami. And they had just bought a trust company in Miami, and they wanted to build a significant subsidiary there, both for New York retirees in Florida, but also to see if they could figure out a way to get access to more international high net worth investors. And I really grew up at uh, Fiduciary Trust over a 13 and a half year period. Jeremy Biggs was the chief investment officer, and he really mentored a lot of people, mostly women. It's kind of a, you know, the Biggs family investment dynasty, as you know, they're all pretty brilliant. Jeremy and Barton's father was an investor, and then obviously Fiona was an investor also. So I do think there's something really good in the Biggs genes. But Jeremy was very tough on me, but I realized that I liked this notion of seeing a portfolio holistically. And I didn't have the pieces in my repertoire yet to do that, but it was, I think, between Swenson, uh, value investing, and then Jeremy kind of put it all together in terms of wanting to ultimately see how, how does one become a CIO. Loved managing money. I think direct management of portfolios is a wonderful training for someone who ultimately becomes an allocator because you get used to pulling the trigger, you get used to being wrong and having to extricate yourself from mistakes and understanding the nature of your mistakes. And you get used to working with successful, highly opinionated people, which is an important part of one's job, dealing with trustees. I was recruited to be the CIO of a small family office in Miami and realized that I needed to learn more than just how to manage uh, international growth equity and bond portfolios. What are the key differences between a fiduciary trust is high net worth private client type relationships and an endowment portfolio? I view it as you can be the best. It's kind of like painting with one color. I think you don't 
realize it's a big world out there and there's lots of other things you can do within a portfolio above and beyond single stock, fundamental research investing, which is what they were very good at. So that is one difference being having many, many more choices during over market cycles. And also not having to worry about taxes, I think is a huge advantage in the uh, endowment and foundation world. So when you shifted away from the family offices, that's when you went to Florida? Yeah, that's I was recruited by the University of Miami and I was there for 6 years and that's really when all the learning had to occur above and beyond uh, long only global strategies. You know, I added hedge funds and then private equity, then venture capital, then private real estate. So, you know, I'm always amazed when I see people under age 40 who are CIOs because let's face it, it takes a long time to get reasonably good at all those different asset classes. So how'd you learn that? I guess I like to do research. I learned from a lot of other smart investors. I had a very strong consultant at the time, whom you know. Mike Miller explained a lot of stuff to me. He was very, very helpful. Talked to other CIOs. And also, the more exposure you have to managers across the asset allocation spectrums, I, I really feel that, especially today, I learned the most from my actual managers. So when you switched over to the University of Illinois now, I guess five years ago, what was there at the time? The University of Illinois is a very big and terrific public university with a relatively small endowment. As is the case with many public universities, they had relied quite happily on state funding. And when I joined, the state of Illinois was in slightly better financial shape than it is today, but they were providing about $650 million or 11% of the total budget of the university. The endowment, when I showed up, was around $1.2 billion, and it had been on track to be totally outsourced. And I think that the, the board of the foundation realized that if one was going to really emphasize private philanthropy, having our own investment office with our own brand would really go hand in hand. So they said, you know what, we're changing strategic direction. And I marvel the the guts and the speed with which the board did this. And they did a total about face. We're going to do a national search and we're going to find a CIO to build a brand new team. Prior to that, the CIO and a very small team had been embedded in the foundation offices in Urbana, which is in central Illinois, about two and a half hours south of Chicago. And when I was recruited, I tried to explain how important it was to recruit investment professionals to a great city like Chicago. And that is, in fact, what we've done. So you're seeing me at the end of the uh, startup entrepreneurial phase. We're, we're now a growth equity investment office, as I say. So I want to take me back a little bit. If the path was moving towards outsource CIO, you probably are stepping into, I don't know if it's not a pool of cash, but probably not the type of seasoned manager relationships that some of the larger, longstanding endowment CIOs have built over 20 or 30 years. That is very true. And that was and continues to be a big challenge for us, especially in 
private asset classes. The portfolio was well managed, but with maybe larger AUM managers. But there were four fund-to-fund relationships that I inherited. And the budget for the investment office was being migrated from the advisory fees paid to the external advisors. And so that was a process. You know, this this takes time. I I started with uh, no team, this portfolio of fund of funds, and uh, I I didn't even have a telephone. So (laughs) so it's, it's, you know, I always use nautical uh, analogies, uh, given my, my father's background, but you really, you're deconstructing the ship while it's still in motion so that you cannot do a radical thing or else the ship will sink. So that on the margin, I would say that it took longer than it might have taken given all the moving parts and that I had to staff up at the same time. I think you talk to most new program CIOs, they say minimum three years. I think it's probably more at around five. And this is the first year I feel like the performance does reflect the work that's been done since I I started in early 2013. We have a long way to go, however, on the private side, and we don't have those longstanding relationships with the the top managers. And so we've decided instead of hiring, you know, B, C, and D, we're setting off to try to find smaller groups, first-time funds, smaller funds. So everything is kind of skewed towards smaller as a result, one way to handle that Is that across the board or mostly in the private investments? Across the board. I've been fairly convinced that when you look at life cycles of firms and talent and how, in particular, the hedge fund industry, but I think this applies to any asset management or investment manager, it's just very hard to maintain the same entrepreneurial tendencies and focus after 10, 15 years, and especially after you cross over certain thresholds of AUM. So when you first show up, there's so much to do, and it's just you, but you, you mentioned uh, the board had already decided to go in the direction. How do you start to prioritize your time to move forward in the direction that you want to? When you have everything to do, it's easy to get overwhelmed. I believe that the reason I was successful in accomplishing a lot in a short period of time was that all the big gnarly stuff was agreed upon prior to my hire. So I had a list of 15 things. I decided it's always good to start with the most difficult things. So I spent the first six months on governance and it was very hard not to do anything in the portfolio, but I really felt that if we got the governance framework in place, uh, there would be plenty of time to work on the portfolio. So we we had to figure out a way to shrink the size of the investment committee from, I believe it was around 16 or 17 in half. Everyone agreed that that needed to be done and we needed to do it in the most diplomatic way possible. And I I think we did reasonably well. And then all the policies, I had to write some new policies. Meaning investment policy? Investment policy, short-term investment policy, a conflict of interest policy, a governance policy statement. I didn't have one before. So we got all that documentation, agreement, voting bylaws, et cetera, done by the June meeting. So that was a lot to ask of the group. And we also set the new asset allocation by June of that year. So we were kind of ready to go six months into my tenure there. And then I started working on the portfolio, found an office in June that year, moved in, hired a chief of staff, and then kind of concurrently started staffing up and also working on the portfolio. So let's turn a little bit to the structure of the portfolio. I'm thinking, boy, five years, you're talking 2012, which 
for the most part, I think a lot of investors weren't talking any differently about capital market pricing than they are today. Things felt overpriced, hard to know where to look for value. How did you set up that kind of de novo asset allocation? You have this challenge. Now there's a billion dollars here. You can set it up however you want. What did that asset allocation look like and how did you think about it? We have a very simplified asset allocation of global equity, a global credit, and then things that go bump in the night section. So it's really an 80-20. That's the technical asset. That, yeah, things so that go bump in the night. This is what is Bruce Greenwald <laughs> calls that your, uh, not the rainy day fund. It's just like when, when the hits the fan yeah. part of the portfolio. You can curse. Yeah, sorry, okay. I don't you know, I don't want my my kids <laughs> to be upset. So, you know, our real um, minimum break even return is 5.45% because we're funding the university and the foundation. So, this has to be a growth and return oriented portfolio. We in the past, there was nothing wrong at all with the portfolio, but it probably was not taking enough equity-like risk. And also, inflows kind of matched outflows. So I really felt that liquidity was not a huge issue. And a lot of my work with the committee uh, revolved around getting comfortable with the fact and I thought they could handle, you know, a, a reasonable amount of mark-to-market volatility. So, you know, wrote guidelines on kind of what I thought should be the things that we would focus on. And it's taken, it, you know, like everyone else, I was ready for interest rates to go up back in 2013. So I started thinking about how could I position the portfolio for a higher interest rate environment. I made the conscious decision not to invest. I had a lot of cash inflows from the fund of funds. So when the market was going straight up, that was a drag. But when the market was going down, we looked brilliant. The hardest thing was how do you move quickly when you don't like anything? And so as a result, I probably dragged my feet a lot on reallocating the money, especially in the longer term parts of the portfolio. So I tried to move as quickly, but as carefully as possible. Latin expression is festina lente, you know, move it, but be very careful. So, and I did get some criticism from some board members, but you know, why aren't you buying ETFs in these areas where you, you haven't reallocated the money? And I made the decision I feel very strongly that cash psychologically is very different from an ETF or any other page marker or bookmarker type of asset class. And I was, I've been worried about the market for five years. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure I made tons of mistakes, but the portfolio is now re, kind of largely rebuilt, about 90% rebuilt uh, after four years. And so what was the largest cash balance you had at any point in time in the last couple of years? So it was large enough for me to wonder if I should put in the policy so it wouldn't look so stupid. Um, I think it was. I think one fiscal year in it might have been twelve to fourteen. I want to say fourteen percent. Right now it's it's to the point where we don't have to worry about it. It's around three percent, and I have also the um, kind of flow experience of three or four years of seeing that gifts do really tend to match our distributions. So unlike many other institutions, and we're about to, you know, go into a big fundraising campaign, I don't actively worry about liquidity. On the other hand, I am a big believer in keeping some dry powder for a rainy day. And and even though I don't think investing for Armageddon is a good strategy, I do think a lot about 
building intrinsic hedges in terms of the, the types of strategies of managers into the portfolio to work in a higher interest rate environment or a higher inflation environment, et cetera. So if you're asset allocations, global equities, global credit, things that go up in the night, that's now the official category for whatever we're calling that. What's the logic? That's quite different from asset classes. It's also different from risk factors. So how did you get there? It's, I don't think I was particularly creative. I, we need growth. So you got your growth, growth coming from global equities. Hedge funds are a fee structure or a legal entity so that I don't care if it's a hedged equity, directionally long hedge fund or private equity, it's equity. So we put everything public and private into that 63% in global equity. And then the category of non-sovereign credit stuff, and that could be anything that's not a sovereign bond or a global inflation-linked security. So we have a very eclectic group of managers within this category. In general, it's a diversifying part of the portfolio. So you have growth, you have diversifying growth, and then you have the things that work when nothing else is working. Right. And what what goes into that bucket? That's the anchor to windward bucket. Again, the uh, nautical analogies. Um, we have global sovereigns. We have the little 3% cash. Uh, it's a one to three three-year duration type of investment. We have our real estate in there. We have our real assets in there. And we have our global inflation-linked investments in there. And some are passive, some are active, some are public, and some are private. So once you don't have to really be focused on liquidity, I once we realized that and got comfortable knowing that I wouldn't need to distribute much more than was coming in over the course of the fiscal year, I thought, let's just put everything together and make decisions not based on these increasingly unhelpful categories that consultants uh, talk about. So we eliminated hedge funds from the vocabulary and we eliminated alternatives from the, we don't talk about alternatives or hedge funds. We talk about equities, credit, inflation-linked things, et cetera. How do you think about where you have competitive advantages? $1.7 billion. Our advantage is the fact that we're large enough to be relevant and also small enough to be relevant so that I believe we've gotten good at identifying talent earlier and figuring out ways to partnership over the long term with younger managers. We um, have put some people in business. We've been in founder share class. I feel very comfortable now figuring out ways to get comfortable with the business risk of a newer firm. And also we're doing more oddball strategies. We like orthogonal strategies that are pre-institutional. And in those, I include things like we're doing a lot of agriculture, which is a core competence of the uh, of the institution. We're, we've done some litigation finance. So we're looking, there's really nothing that we won't look at. We've done some co-investments and we've also done direct investments with some large family groups. So let's go through those. Agriculture. How do you structure it? How do you think about the opportunity set and what excites you today? Well, Ag University of Illinois has a long 
and stored history in agriculture. Agriculture is a great asset class for an endowment because it is very long-term and the cycles are long. Fortunately or unfortunately, the last cycle peaked in 2012, but ag really was the best performing asset class for the decade ending 2012. It has components of real assets, but also of private equity. So we are in the wonderful position of being given gifted farms. So we have about 150 million in gifted farms. And we recognize, you know, people are very attached to their farms, not like a a donation of stock. And so If our donors understand that we're not going to dump the asset immediately, they are very happy about that. So we have started retaining all gifted farms for to the foundation from from donors. So we have this direct portfolio that's managed on the ground. A lot of it is in central Illinois. And then we said, all right, let's talk to all the really smart agribusiness uh, PE venture capital, uh, growth equity type people in the ag and food space. And we have a number of really, really storied graduates from the university in the profession. And we just have spent the last three, four years talking to a lot of public and private groups and have made some investments outside of, you know, we said, okay, we got central Illinois, we have investments in Brazil, and also in sub-Saharan Africa. So the, the general theme is that we can feed the world if we get more efficient. And so, so much value is lost through the chain of distribution around the world that we're looking for companies that figure out better ways to increase value with less waste getting food to market. And how do you implement and so, so you're gifted a farm. Do you have a team of operators or do they tend to, to give you the whole operation with the farm? Most of these, so the people who own farms, farming unfortunately is no longer a father-son, mother-daughter type of business so that farmers are, the owners are absentee and they're run by people who run the farms. And so we retain the relationship with the with the people running the farm. Uh, we have, there's lots of uh, farm management banks and trust companies in central Illinois that do that, but we are now on the cusp of figuring out how can we bring this in-house and we're going to create our own internal farm management unit so that those people will be part of the investment team, but they'll probably sit just for, you know, it's logical for them to sit not in Chicago, but where the farms are. Sure. But there's tons of expertise there. And then, you know, we're also talking a lot with the faculty because ag economics and finance are really strong at University of Illinois so that, you know, these are the people that invented all kinds of ag derivatives. And we have a talking group, a cross-disciplinary group that meets, and we're really trying to figure out how to get better at this, both directly and also as a theme through the portfolio. And I think that Figuring out what your competence is from a mission standpoint. I mean, I can't be Stanford in venture capital, but we can be really good in this. So agriculture is the long-term strategic goal of our endowment program. And what's been the most challenging situation you've come across in in the ag space? I did have one guy come and uh, pitch me the idea of the endowment buying a cow, and so this is a single. This is just Bessie the cow. A single One, cow, yeah. and um, so obviously I tried to nod very seriously and say, "Hmm." And this was a cow that was going to 
produce more milk. And so there was a venture capital kind of improvement angle to it. And I said, sir, you do realize I can't buy a cow. And so I, he, he went away very sad. But that's probably the weirdest thing I've been pitched. You know, we, we, uh, we have 40 managers in the portfolio, but we... We have committed to at least having a conversation with every alum because we feel it's part of our mission. And we, we have one alum in the portfolio who's a terrific healthcare investor. But in general, one of my other big projects like Ag is to figure out how to best harness all this great alumni talent. I'm convinced that you ask people for money, they give you advice. But if you ask them for advice, they give you money. I want to create an alumni advisory network because the, the talent around the world across asset classes is amazing. And I was like, I've known you for 10 years. I never knew you went to the University of Illinois. So it's a, you know, it's a very modest Midwestern place. Frankly, we could use a little more sizzle. I'm amazed at the amount of talent from our grads across a number of disciplines. Uh, so when we, in the internet was in fact invented at the university, and Netscape was invented at the University of Illinois. And if you had any situations where being gifted a plot of land became a big time sink for you, even though it was sort of a small individual investment? Not as yet. And I think it's because we said, all right, if we're going to take these into the endowment, and if we're going to commit not to hold them forever, but to hold them for the foreseeable future, that basically says that this is not a saleable asset. So we go, okay, it's going to be pooled, but we're going to put it below the line. We recognize that this is the kind of asset that has a number of different goals. We don't take in anything that doesn't pass what I would call an institutional due diligence process. So far, since I've been there, we've only accepted two relatively large farms. And I think we're, we would like, you know, we're hoping very much to get more gifts as we go into this new fundraising campaign. The uh, Have you spent any time on a farm recently, Ted? I haven't. Well... You know, a guy can easily manage uh, 150 acres these days because technology and farming is its just like the oil service industry. It's amazing. Not just the equipment, but the, the genetics and the seeds, the drones for irrigation, the infrared a look through to see where actually to water, not to water. So I, I view agriculture really as a, a really high-tech industry, and as a result, greater productivity of the land, but also fewer people can farm larger plots of land. So it's it's fascinating what's going on in terms of the, the evolution of technology in, in agriculture. And how is that translated over into change? And in either I'm not sure how to think about the unit economics of a farm or... Maybe it's more the rate of return or return expectations on those investments. Well, the thing that I find particularly interesting about farming and about ag as an asset class is that the arable land is finite. We're not going to make more. The existing land can be more productive, but you have to take really good care of it, right? You can't overplant, overuse. And so I find it very funny that farmers are tend to be very conservative people politically, but they're like the original tree huggers because these are the people that really understand that if you don't take care of your land, you will ruin it. So that I think that at the margin, all this means that 
uh, labor costs go down, productivity goes up, and waste and input costs go down because you're not blanketing the entire field with either water or fertilizer. You're just using what you need to get the maximum yield. And then, you know, it blows your mind to see what they're doing in terms of seed uh, genetics. And, you know, we have a lot of great people who went to work for Monsanto. And so, you know, the whole seed business is is very different today from what it was 20 years ago. But uh, it's a lot of interesting science, a lot of great companies coming out of venture space into a growth equity stage and being snapped up by larger food or other companies. So it's looking really good. And it's probably one of the most interesting things I've tackled so far. And within that let's call it agriculture sub-portfolio. There are the farms. You also mentioned venture capital or, or just businesses or maybe stocks. What are the layers that you've deployed assets into different agriculture-type investments? So we have the direct farms, and then we also have investments in specific funds. One is a kind of a U.S.-based nut Manufacturer, a pecan farmer, and they're rolling up pecan grows, trying to turn pecans into the same thing as almonds have become. And those are in the U.S. And then we've done a co-investment with fresh fruits in in uh, the southern cone, uh, exporting mostly to Asia. So f- the whole area of fresh produce and fresh fruit at the margin, we'll probably see a lot of growth as developing countries demand that. And then in in Africa, you're talking about dairy, fish tilapia farms, and also poultry. So a lot of it is fresh produce and fruits, but also a lot is how to introduce uh, more protein into other diets of developing countries. So people want to have more fish, people want to have more chicken in the developing world. So we have a beer can manufacturing company in Africa as well. So these are through funds. We do use a fund of fund when it's a relatively small part of the portfolio, but also to kind of get introductions into a space so that, you know, we'll do a couple of the funds, and then we'll say, all right, now we know all the players in the market, and we'll go direct to the manager. And how big do you think you can get? I would say we're about 12%. The arm's length investments, I really do consider the risk to be much more along the lines of private equity, because these are companies. So even though they're investing in ag-related things, I'm not so sure the risks are the same as owning real you know, assets in the ground as we do with these direct gifts. I think it should be a significant part of the portfolio all in. So I would say somewhere between 10 and 20% over time. One of the professors at the university had mentioned to me that why couldn't we build a platform onto which all the other Midwestern universities that didn't know what to do with, with their farms could give us the farms and we the idea would be to create our own REIT. You add a little bit of leverage and then you grow it and down the road you sell it to TIAA. So that would be that would be a great project, but that's obviously, you know, we're talking long term. You also mentioned co investing and direct investments. And how do you think about the benefits and the challenges of doing that with a small team? I think that the best decision investment decision make, making is made by fewer people. My group understands that at the margin, everyone will be working more 
than they would if they were in a more standard size. If you have four of the right people, you can get a lot done. We had never done a direct or co-investment, and we got a call from someone whom we respect in Chicago, and someone had dropped out of a deal. The deal was already done. We knew the other LPs. It wasn't a large check, but it was large considering it was our first direct investment. So our first direct investment we did in a month. I have a really talented director of private investments. I know that if we had the opportunity, we'd like to do more. And maybe we're going to have to add like an analyst dedicated to him for that function, because it is hard to do these things very quickly. I believe that most people in my seat understand that the the best way to share in more of the economics is to get a little closer to the investment as you begin your career. At a family office, you'll realize that family offices have been doing this for years, and they're not sure why anyone is even bothering to invest in funds. So you talk to a lot of CIOs of family offices, they'll just tell you that they, they never expected the GPs to have their interests at heart. So I think hanging out with a lot of large and sophisticated family office CIOs has really opened my perspective. So I expect that we'll have a nice mix of funds co-investments and direct investments. What are you most excited about in the markets? I have a couple of overweights in in the portfolio. One is Japan. I had been studying and waiting For and a studying long time. and waiting like everyone else and but I I did put a, an overweight on Japanese equities in June of 2013 and I have also one active strategy on top of uh, this allocation. So it's it's about a 4% overweight. I am not inclined to reduce it because even though it's like watching paint dry, the things that I had, nothing has changed about the story. It's just, it's obviously taking a very long time. I'm very encouraged by the improvements in earnings at many of the companies that we own. I think that the valuations are still reasonable. I think that most people still don't believe that Japan has moved out of this deflationary period, but I think they have, and this will be really apparent maybe a year from now. So that's one thing I'm still pretty enthusiastic about, and I'm headed to Japan in a, in a month or so. Again, I, I, I have I love Japan. I really enjoy the sensibility. And the great thing about Japan is that, you know, because of this 25-year drought, it's pretty, you know, there's not that many people to meet. And I'm always amazed when I see people like, hey, I saw you in the early 90s and you're still here. So there's a lot of continuity among some of the strategists and investors in Japan. We've had a lot in Europe that's worked out really well. And a slight overweight in Europe. I'm fully invested in the U.S. I think that maybe at 18%, that's high for most of my peers. But it has, I inherited a a strong U.S. weighting and I took it down very slowly during this nice rally. And at 18%, I think that's probably okay. I I might pull that back a little bit. I, I think it's a really challenging time to invest. But then again, I guess we say that all the time. Maybe it should be hard all the time. I find it difficult to figure out what to do in within credit strategies. Done some unusual things, both public and kind of private drawdown structures in credit. What else? I guess the only other big idea I've had is I started thinking that if, you know, when you consider that 
six out of eight of the major public markets in Latin America, all around the same time, have moved away from statist, dirigiste governments and said, you know, this really didn't work out. You know, government control of the markets, it's been a mess. Populism hasn't worked. And did a deep dive in Brazil with the whole team over a two-week period, looking at, it's like, what if Latin America and other developing market countries, you know, with better balance sheets, what if, in fact, they became the analog of the developed world? In other words, if the UK and the US are moving in, the, in a certain direction towards populism, maybe the idea is to invest in um, these Latin American countries that they have not done any of the crazy QE intervention stuff on the monetary policy side and, and are really trying to get their acts in shape as far as governments and corruption are concerned. Now, people have been burned so many times before, and right after we did this big trip to Brazil, of course, Brazil blows up again. But we've done really, really well in Brazil, and I do think that at the margin, a pan-Latin American strategy is a really interesting way to approach economies and countries that are in really good shape, and there's some terrific companies down there. And how do you think about sizing these opportunities relative to some... I don't know if you're using you know, global equities, you're using a Acqui benchmark or something, you're talking about tilts relative to that? Yes. How do you decide how much to tilt? I'm not particularly formulaic. It's really situation specific. And again, I think that if you're going to all the trouble to do all the on the ground um, due diligence and work and kicking of the tires and you know, you're taking two years to make a decision, I really think you have to express in a way that's going to make a difference. So... Yeah, I have a sense that all this is going to make. <laughs> well, it's so you know, so far so good. Um, it's you know, it's I wake up occasionally in the middle of the night. I think that I worry about making mediocre choices. I I worry about about finding people who just turn out to be average or who so. You know, and it's hard, right? There are so many a lot of people choice. to choose from. Yes, there are. And it's, again, it's a so. lot different from if you started 20 or 30 years ago and the choices were smaller, but the people who found their way into those seats tended to be pretty exceptional. And then you know, a lot of the larger endowments have ridden those relationships for a long time. So, No, yeah, we're small, we're challenge. small, but we're scrappy. We, we, we try to really um, hit above our weight class and we don't... You know, building a reputation takes time, and I think we're on this right path. I feel, you know, five years from now, you could say, ah, that's a program that's been around for for 10 years, and this is what they've done. I do think that whether you're talking about Scott Malpass, Eric Lumberg, or Dave Swenson, you know, it's the continuity of their leadership and the leadership of their committees and their boards. That's the secret sauce that often can't be measured, but... That, to me, must be super critical when you compare it to other equally well-resourced endowments that have not done as well. I think turnover is deadly in our business. And so to the extent that you can keep leadership and strategy intact and going for at least a decade, and in Scott's case, what, three decades? I mean, it's amazing. All right. Let's, let's turn to a few fun closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or an observer? Oh, I can give you one of each. All right. 
I ran a half marathon, so that was pretty nice. good. And I'm glad I did it before I had a total hip replacement, so that was also I good. They might be related. Yeah, I don't know about the causality there. And then, of course, as a newly arrived citizen of Chicago, what can you say about the you know the Cubs? You know, yeah. And so I was excited for the town. That really um, it was a very very nice moment when they won the World Series last year. All right, here's a new one. A little shout out to Sasha and Bill at the Ford Foundation for this question. Who is your favorite person? Do I have to know this person? No. It's hard to say just one, because I've been blessed to meet a lot of wonderful people. Um, I'm going to go with my husband, because he may listen to this. And um, <laughs> he is my favorite person because, you know, I think if you, you have the good fortune to partner or marry or be with someone who really gets you and supports you, you're very, very fortunate indeed. And he's really made my, my intellectual and my life in general very, very rich. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? That is a wonderful question. So um, my father was a brilliant, idiosyncratic person. And I think that he impressed upon me. I think he raised me as a guy. And that's why I've been pretty comfortable in male-dominated professions. But I, I, he just was always on me to ask questions. You know, did you ask questions? Did you ask questions? I think he felt that his education, he had made a mistake by being too shy about speaking up and asking questions. So I think he'd be very pleased to see that I make a living asking questions of other people. What recent piece of information have you read or seen that made a memorable impact on you? I've been um, reading a lot about how teams can be better at decision-making and investment decision-making. So I've enjoyed these books called Crucial Conversations and also Radical Candor. And so my personal leadership project for the next year is to really figure out a way. And you'd think it'd be easier with a small team, and no doubt it is, and we're all in the same place. So this is not a complex organizational structure, but... I know there is a way to elicit stronger communication, and I want to learn and help others get better at disagreeing constructively to get to a better investment result. And we're, and we're, we're getting there. I do have the impression that my voice is, uh, I, I have to be the ultimate decision maker, but I don't want my, the strength of my bias and my opinion to to drown out what is no doubt a lot of other great stuff that may be missed. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Probably a greater sense of relaxation and understanding that oftentimes doing nothing and relaxing more, not being so driven, so type A, the answer will in fact come to you instead of you chasing the answer. And that's something that, you know, you tend to learn as you you push 50. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last one. It's your waning days. You're 100 years old, arm in arm with your husband in your rocking chairs. What advice would you give yourself today? Be a little more grateful every day for stuff you have. Don't forget that we're all incredibly privileged, lucky, and you know we have these amazing jobs that help other people, but also are incredibly challenging and intellectually wonderful. So I, f- I feel very fortunate uh, to be where I am today. Fantastic. Ellen, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. 
If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.